on the 9th of January 16, 2019, two men on a motorbike trailed a BMW through the streets of Accra. A gun was fired at the driver of the car, forcing him to swerve and crash the car into a roadside store. One of the men then calmly walked up to the BMW and fired two more shots at the man behind the vehicle. Turning to face the crowd, watching from a distance, he smiled and raised a finger to his lips. The man who was shot and killed that night was journalist Ahmed Hussein Swali Devela. He was just 31 years old. Police like journalist Jonas Nyabo says that Devela's killers were without a doubt paid assassins. No other killing in Ghana has had as deafening a ricochet as that of journalist Ahmed Hussein Swali Devela. Grabbing media headlines and dominating public discourse in cities and far-flung villages alike, his death transformed him into a public hero. As a young journalist, Devela chose the tough and dangerous path of investigating organized crime groups. Devela joined Tiger Eye, an organization which had achieved renown for its exposure of human trafficking syndicate, corruption, and abuses in a state-owned psychiatric hospital. Unfazed by high-risk conditions, Devela was known for never allowing anything to stand between him and a big story. He was the second in command of the team that pulled two of Tiger Eye's most successful assignments. Ghana in the Eyes of God, an undercover investigation that caught 30 judges and dozens of judicial officials accepting bribes, exposing and suspending seven high court judges and number 12, which uncovered Ghanaian referees and the head of the Ghanaian Football Association accepting money from Tiger Eye journalists posing as intermediaries. Investigation involving Ghana Football Association officials, the Tiger IPI investigative organization, has given the current administration the raw footage of the number 12. 77 referees and 14 officials were implicated in the stench. Boy, by this success in Ghana, the undercover team took their cameras into several other African countries where investigations revealed a similar situation of endemic bribery. Many have speculated that the African football community, where organized crime groups are fast taking over the sports betting business, are responsible for organizing developers' assassination. In September 2018, Devela had informed the committee to protect journalists and that his life was in danger. Kennedy Japon, a member of parliament for the country's ruling New Patriotic Party and owner of the Ghanaian television station, Netu TV, had appeared on TV calling on his supporters to attack Devela as punishment for his role in the football exposure. 
Releasing a photograph of the undercover reporter and thus unveiling his identity. Despite being neither a football referee nor a high court judge, a Japan harbored much anger towards Devela. Police claim they have invited the MP for informal questioning. However, I yet to find the smoking gun behind the assassination. In February 2019, six people were arrested and interrogated in connection with the murder, but were later released on bail. No progress report on the investigation has been provided by the police since. Ahmed Devela's story is just one of the many we find across the world. Journalists, campaigners, politicians, environmentalists and others. Brave individuals who have had their lives taken from them because they chose to take a stand against organized crime. Many of those responsible have yet to be brought to justice for these murders. Organized criminals tried to silence them. But through this podcast and campaign from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we want to make sure we continue to hear their voices continue their fight and strive to make the change they sought. This is Faces of Assassination. I am Siria Gastelum Felix, Resilience Director at the Global Initiative. Through this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiative's assassination witness campaign. On this episode of Faces of Assassination, we're going to be discussing an issue particularly close to my heart, the assassination of journalists. I lost a colleague and friend, Javier Valdez, an award-winning journalist from Mexico who campaigned against organized crime. Javier was murdered in 2017 in Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico. Tragically, Javier and Ahmed are just two of 625 journalists over the past 20 years that have been murdered for their reporting and investigations on organized crime and corruption. Today, we'll discuss why journalists find themselves at risk, what has been done to combat it, and what needs to be done. Joining me are experts from the main organizations working to protect journalists across the world. We have Guillerme Canela Godoy, who is currently heading the Global Unit on Freedom of Expression and Safety of Journalists at UNESCO. Frank Smythe, the Senior Advisor for Journalist Security at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Pauline Ademebel, Editor-in-Chief, Spokeswoman at Reporters Without Borders, RSF. And Andrew Caruana Galizia, co-founder of the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation and son of journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. Welcome, everybody. It's a real honor to have you here. Why are so many journalists being assassinated across the globe? Well, journalists are at risk for many reasons, one being their primary focus, to speak truth to power and give a voice to the voiceless. The Committee to Protect Journalists has been compiling detailed records of journalist killings. 12 have been killed this year already, and there are currently 64 missing globally. Let me start with Frank. Why are so many journalists being murdered for their work? Who are the perpetrators? Well, it's a very good question. The perpetrators are very often criminal actors who are working in concert with corrupt government officials. This happens in many nations throughout the world. And the Committee to Protect Journalists has compiled a database which has shown that people suspected, government officials 
or others suspected of working with government officials or are suspected of more murders of journalists than even murders committed by terrorists or other political groups. So that's the main reason this nexus of collusion between criminal actors and elected officials when journalists start to uncover evidence of those ties that people get murdered. Definitely, that's a lethal combination for journalism, corrupt politicians and organized crime. And we're seeing more of this combo all over the world and in every continent indeed. In 2019, a UNESCO report called Intensified Attacks, New Defenses showed that journalists are increasingly experiencing verbal and physical attacks in connection with their work. Recent years have been marked by an increase in imprisonment, kidnapping, and physical violence amid widespread rhetoric hostile to the media and journalists. And we used to think that the riskier job for a journalist was to be a war correspondent, but the new data is showing the great vulnerability of local reporters. Pauline, what kind of stories are making these local journalists a target for criminal assassinations in their own communities? Well, the organized crime godfather are very often at stake and they are very sensitive to whenever their image is at stake. So they do not hesitate to crack down uh, on any reporter who poses a threat. And those who tell the truth deserve to die. So um, what we see in our reports and uh, in the case we are monitoring is that for exposing uh, the underside of mafias, writers, journalists uh, throughout the world are being exposed and um, threatened to be killed. These journalists, these investigative journalists deal with criminal underworld that is masked, always masked. They are a huge danger for uh, investigative reporters uh, nowadays. In many countries, organized crime has established a kind of a pact with the state. On top of that, it's not only the mafia, to the point that sometimes you cannot tell where one stops and the other begins. So that's like octopus for journalists uh, investigating these criminal networks. And this is exactly what investigative journalism is meant to do, expose crime, but doing journalism shouldn't be a death sentence. Guillerme, the figures collected by the UNESCO Observatory of Killed Journalists show that journalists not only suffer extreme risk when covering violent conflict, but that they are also being targeted when reporting on local politics, corruption, and crime, often in their own hometowns. Why has it become so dangerous to cover local stories? How is the danger different than covering a war in the traditional way? And what kind of attacks against the press we see at the local level? This question is very important. And since 1993, UNESCO has recorded 1,400 killings of journalists. And I think we need to dig deeper in those stories. This is one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is the issue of impunity. The high levels of impunity creates a vicious cycle of violence. For those local journalists and for the organized crime responsible for their death, unfortunately, it doesn't cost much to kill a journalist because the, the rates of impunity are over 90%. So this is certainly part of the explanation, but it's not the only one. And, and finally, when we had the journalists being killed in conflict zones, we had kind of a common approach on how to deal with these kind of cases. But as all the speakers that spoke before told, when we go to these fragmented causes for the killings of journalists, journalists that are covering sports, human rights issues, corruption, environment, the different causes, explanations, perpetrators, and the reality of all those countries are so different 
that obviously the strategies to tackle the issue are also very different, which makes it more difficult to address this huge challenge we have. So I would leave that there because I think we need to go deeper in some of those questions. And we will go deeper indeed, but first let's go deeper and personal. Andrew, I am sure that all these factors resonate with your own story. Can you tell us more about your mother, her work, and the kind of stories she sacrificed her life for? Thank you, Syria. Yes, everything that's been said has really resonated. My, my mother described herself as a political commentator, as a columnist, a publisher. But most people now would, would describe her as an investigative journalist because she, she led the work in Malta on the Panama Papers. So she was the first journalist to discover that two members of the Maltese government owned Panamanian companies that were sheltered by, by trusts in New Zealand at a time when the government itself was on a mass privatization drive, including the privatization of multi-citizenship and the privatization of healthcare and, and energy generation in Malta. So obviously she suspected that these two members of government had created these sort of general purpose money laundering structures to funnel off kickbacks from all these privatization projects. And this is the story she worked on in the last year of her life. There were several angles, but the characters always remained the same. It was always the, the energy minister at the time, the prime minister's chief of staff, and the prime minister himself, and then a few other characters coming in and out of the picture. In, in October 2017, so about a year and a half after she first published her Panama Papers stories, she was murdered in a, in a remotely detonated car bomb attack. And my, my family and I obviously suspected straight away that, that this was linked to her Panama Papers stories. I mean, one of the staggering things about her investigations is that the network of criminals was so large. There were so many people involved, so many names, so many different pieces, and they all somehow protected each other. And it's only, it's only recently that that criminal network has started to slowly fall apart. It's still very dangerous, but some of its leading protagonists are now in pretrial detention. Others have lost the public office. So there's a sense that things are slowly moving in the right direction. But only two days ago, a key witness in the case against the alleged mastermind in my mother's assassination was found with stab wounds at his home in Malta. The police suspect it was an attempted suicide, but it's obviously left many of us feeling shaken at the vulnerability of the case against the people who commissioned my mother's murder. Pauline, you'd like to come in here. I, I would like to uh, comment on what Andrew uh, just said. You mentioned the fact that uh, indeed your mother was seen as a commentator and reporting on uh, some facts on the island. I think what we're seeing today is that it's an iceberg. The more and more we monitor the situation in Malta, the more and more we get to know what had happened, we can discover that not only she was a commentator, but she was an investigative journalist because part of what she did not finish because she, she was assassinated is becoming true and revealed and shown to the world. So um, I think it's a very interesting aspect. She couldn't guess part of what she was uh, writing about. And now we are discovering um, some of the aspects and realizing that it's a mountain, it's an iceberg, and uh, it is not over at all. Thank you, Pauline, for that. I mean, that's the feeling we, we have as a family. 
this is going to be a very long process. Even the legal proceedings themselves will go on for years, even if they're not sabotaged. And the picture is the same in several other countries in Europe, let alone in the rest of the world. So the toll on uh, on family members of victims, on on campaigners, even on law enforcement officials who are trying to do their jobs is is incredible. And on journalists themselves, of course, who continue to follow in the footsteps of their murdered colleagues. Thank you both. And so we're seeing that the threats are at the local level and at the national level, and that the fight for justice can take a long time. It takes a toll on people like colleagues and, of course, the relatives and even institutions. And really, impunity is the big enemy. As Frank and Guillerme have said, where there's impunity, assassinations continue to happen. And according to CPJ, even when the killers get caught and convicted, the masterminds nearly always remain free. This sends a very bad message. The impunity rate remains shockingly at almost 90% worldwide, with fewer than one in eight cases recorded by UNESCO since 2006 currently listed as resolved. But there are already things that have been done to mitigate this tremendous risk facing journalists covering organized crime, and your organizations are working on it. Guillerme, can you tell us more about the work that UNESCO is doing to protect journalists? What is the UN plan of action on the safety of journalists and what resources UNESCO has developed for promoting the safety of journalists and combating impunity? Sure. Um, The UN plan of action is a platform that involves all the UN's, uh, UN agencies, funds and programs, which is a very strong way of showing to all our member states that it's not only UNESCO or the high commissioners of human rights or the UNODC that are concerned with this issue, but the entire UN system. So this is a strong message. Uh, The plan is obviously coordinated by UNESCO in the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights. But one of the key messages of the UN Plan of Action is that the issue of protecting journalists, of the issue of the safety of journalists, is a very complex issue, as we have been discussing. It's a very complex ecosystem, and we need to acknowledge that to really propose the best policies to face this challenge. And basically what we want the policymakers and the decision makers to understand is that the three pillars of those policies should be prevention, protection, and fighting impunity. So prosecuting the crimes, what we call the three Ps, prevention, protection, and prosecuting the crimes. If we are investing in only one of those pillars, unfortunately and most likely, our goal to increase the safety of journalists will fail. So in that sense, the UN Plan of Action is very helpful because, as you know, we have, for instance, an agency like UNICEF dealing with children's issues, but they are all the time interacting with journalists, and there are, in fact, journalists suffering threats that are covering, for instance, issues related to abuse of children, etc. So we want all the different parts of the system to be involved with that. But if I may add three other quick things. One is the monitoring, as you mentioned. This is very important to keep the records of what's going on in terms of the violence against journalists. That's why the observatory, but also in terms of the impunity issues. And we realized that in terms of the impunity issues, the judicial operators, judges, prosecutors, they are key in this equation. So UNESCO has launched uh, with several partners a few years ago what we call the Judges Initiative. And we have already reached and trained more than 17,000 judges, prosecutors, and other judicial operators in 60 countries. 
this is having an impact. And finally, for not speaking too much about the, the many things UNESCO is doing here, we are also supporting several member states with the creation of national mechanisms of protection of journalists. And this is being really helpful in many cases to enhance the policies on prevention, protection, and prosecuting the crimes. Thank you, Guillerme. This international cooperation is definitely key to tackle a problem that is big, that is global, and that it seems to be getting worse. Definitely requires coordination amongst multiple stakeholders and Reporters Without Borders has been lobbying for the creation of a special representative to the United Nations for the safety of journalists. Pauline, why do you think this is necessary and what other actions we must be taking at the global level? Because uh, we believe at Reporters Without Borders that on the one hand, we have to ensure the safety of journalists. I mean, the issue of the chilling effects on other journalists is always extremely big once you attack a journalist, there is an impact on other journalists. Second, we have to fight against impunity of exactions committed against them. So it's absolutely key to uh, secure the journalist, but also secure access to a free and uh, reliable information environment for the public. It's very important that journalists understand that telling the truth and bringing the truth does not mean necessarily being attacked, etc. So we started this campaign to demand a special representative of the UNSG for the safety of journalists because we thought that it was a very, very strong message sent to the community of journalists. Plus, although we had seen a number of resolutions adopted, they were still ineffective and they, we couldn't see a decrease in the killings of journalists. So multiple resolution in the past decade before uh, 2015, but on the ground, no progress. I mean, no reflection in the reality on the ground if we are to judge by the number of journalists killed uh, each year. So um, we believe that this is um, probably um, the main sign message in terms of institution. And of course, having a representative needs also some um, international cooperation, coordination. RSF is not acting by itself, but uh, this is also um, a fact that has to be uh, taken by other organizations. I mean, we are all fighting the same people and they, so we should all demand the appointment of a special representative for the safety of journalists. Thank you, Pauline. You spoke at the beginning of awareness, creating awareness amongst journalists about their own work and the threats and the importance of covering their stories without being in danger. And Guillermo was also speaking to us about prevention. I think it is important to give journalists the tools to protect themselves. Absolutely. Frank, you developed a training on security that has proven to be quite effective. You mentioned to us that one of your trainees was caught in crossfire by rival gangs in Mexico and survived the attack. Can you explain to us how this works? It's a mixture of classroom presentation, practice situations, and then full-blown real-life scenarios where journalists and also aid workers are challenged to apply the skills they've, they've learned. And there was a case a few years ago where one of our graduates of the Stephen Sotloff Memorial Scholarship, Stephen being the second journalist beheaded by ISIS in uh, 2014, it was one of the graduates of that class who then went to Mexico. They were interviewing a suspected 
drug trafficker when other suspected drug traffickers arrived on the scene, shot and killed the interviewee, and then wounded the director and some other people. And our graduate, Luke Forsyth, was able to maintain control of his faculties and apply first aid to his wounded director and then get him uh, hospital care. And ultimately, the director survived. So the training is both an awareness of tactical skills, but there's also an awareness of one's own reactions to stress and one's own state of mind and how to maintain equilibrium in those circumstances. So it's, it's effective, but I also want to say that even though it's effective, even though I have an interest in encouraging people to get training, which I think is important, it still doesn't really solve the problem of impunity. The problem of impunity is a weakness of judicial systems in nations around the world where journalists as well as others can be murdered with impunity. And the one thing I want to say is the United Nations has done great work, UNESCO and other bodies, in terms of raising the issue and and supporting the campaign against impunity. But the one problem is UN agencies are reluctant to use the word murder. They use the word journalists were killed. And most of the time when we say a journalist is killed, we're talking about a journalist being murdered in what usually is called a homicide, two shots in the back of the head as they're coming out of their office or their homes. That happens with alarming frequency. And we're not going to address the problem of impunity until we start talking about these murders for what they are, which are homicides or murders, and not lumping them in with killings of journalists, which makes it sound more like journalists are getting killed in war zones, which is really a misnomer, a misleading characterization and and not what's happening. Thank you, Frank. And talking about impunity, Andrew, you have made impunity your crusade. You and your brothers created the Daphne Caruana Galizia Foundation to end impunity for the murder of journalists. Can you tell us more about this work to protect other journalists in Malta and other places? I mean, what what became really clear to us is that our mother wouldn't have been murdered if, if the people who ordered her assassination had been held accountable for earlier crimes. I mean, I I would say I have no data for this, but I assume that in 100% of cases, all the people who order the assassinations of journalists have committed other crimes before, for which they attracted interest from the press in the first place. And in my mother's case, I mean, this applied to every single layer of the conspiracy. So the assassins themselves had been living a life of crime for an entire generation. They were on unemployment benefits, living a life of luxury. So there, there was a massive failure. You know, they they never even faced basic tax investigations. Then the middleman himself, who turned state's evidence, he was running, you know, a multi-million euro betting operation out of a flat that involved other members of his family. We know that the police were aware of this, but they never sort of applied themselves to actually investigating him properly, charging him, prosecuting him. And then the person who ordered the assassination himself I mean, he's from a sort of long line of businessmen who operated at this nexus between corrupt politicians and and organized criminals. And so there we have at least three generations of people who grew very wealthy with true impunity. And we know also through our own country's history that if families never really speak up, if they never really speak publicly, attaching their names to what they're saying, then these murders will just simply fade away. And no police officers will ever risk pursuing these cases aggressively. Obviously, it's hard for victims, you know, for the family members of victims of assassinations to speak out publicly. The fear is incredible that you feel. 
but you have to do it because you can't expect other people to find the courage to do that for you if you're not willing to do it yourself. That's a very hard thing for me to say, and it's a very hard thing to be told as the relative of someone who's been murdered, but that's the truth, that often it's, it's the victims who need to find the courage to speak up first, hoping that other people will follow. And in our mother's case, in our country's case, other people did follow slowly at first, but then more and more started to speak out. And now there's, there's what I hope is a self-sustaining civil society movement for justice for my mother's murder and also for the crimes that she was investigating, which is hugely important if we're ever to unravel the criminal network that was behind her murder. Your story, the story of your family is definitely really inspiring because you've turned a family tragedy into a national movement of hope for justice. Now I want to look forward in a world of significant uncertainty. I want to speak about what needs to be done in the future to protect journalists. Impunity has long been the greatest threat to press freedom, as you all said. We can see examples of this looking through some of the victims we have profiled in the Faces of Assassination book. For example, the story of Zoe Motun from Myanmar. In the early hours of the 13th of December 2016, Ko Thet, a newspaper editor in Myanmar, was returning from a night out with friends when his phone rang. On the other end of the phone was a friend who told him that they'd found a body. The body was that of 35-year-old Zoe Montun, the daily evening journalist and friend of Kothet. He had been found beaten to death, his body left near a local golf course. His wife and eight-year-old son were not informed until the following morning. Although an investigation into the murder was launched, two and a half years later, literal progress has been made. There has been no public trial or sentencing. This has led friends and colleagues of Soe Motun to believe that his death is directly linked to his investigations of illegal logging in the area. Corruption in relation to illegal logging practices in Myanmar is a real problem, and Soe Motun gave his life to expose these crimes. This is another case where impunity, the lack of justice, reinforces the belief that the passage of time always benefits the murderers. Guillerme, how can the information flow within governments in their capacity in monitoring killings incorporated in the work done in the UN Plan of Action can help on the safety of journalists? How can we measure progress on this? Yes, uh, thank you for the question. I mean, we, we have been asking year after year to all member states, well, all countries where those crimes took place, what's going on in terms of the investigation on each of those killings or, or murders, as Frank was saying, that are underlined by, by the UNESCO Director General throughout the years. And obviously, this kind of process in demanding the countries and actually the response that they sent to us are public, it's a way of showing to the different stakeholders what's going on in terms of fighting impunity. This is one way. But it's also important to involve the, the judicial players themselves. So we have been noticing that this work of actually improving and enhancing our dialogue with the courts, with the regional human rights courts, is also uh, having interesting results. For instance, just in the last couple of years, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights have took very interesting decisions in terms of fighting impunity in the cases related to killings of journalists in the region, 
One is uh, the famous case of Vladimir Herzog in Brazil, and the other one is Nelson Carvajal and Carvajal in, in Colombia. And the Inter-American Court has said that uh, the states, they have the obligation to investigate those crimes. And so this is very interesting as a trickle-down effect in terms of applying this international jurisprudence in national grounds. So this work with uh, judges and prosecutors, even to establish specific protocols to investigate those crimes, is really paramount to change the situation. Thank you again, Guillerme. And now back to Frank. You have extensive experience in testifying in security issues before international bodies. What do you think is going wrong? With these investigations and criminal prosecutions, why do so many cases remain unsolved and impunity rates are so high in the cases of journalists? I think the problem is simpler than it may seem, and that is that national judiciaries are simply, in many cases, unwilling to get to the bottom of these cases because they involve people who are too powerful within their own societies. And we've seen that in a number of nations where prosecutors, for instance, in Colombia, have been forced to flee the nation because they themselves were under death threats because of their investigations of various cases, including journalist murders. And we see that time and again, that judicial system just stops short. So all the mechanisms that Guillerme laid out are absolutely essential and have helped raise awareness as well as gain traction for curbing this impunity and bringing to justice those who attack the press. And that needs to be ongoing. But the real failure here is in the judicial systems within those nations where they're just either unwilling or incapable of actually doing what needs to be done to go after those crimes and bring those people responsible. And that makes sense if you remember the great many cases where government officials on some level or another, whether it's a local mayor, a regional a governor, or, or even national officials up to and leading the, the heads of state, who themselves may be suspected of being involved in these murders, that's when these judiciaries hit a brick wall. And I think what you need is support like Guillermo has said from the United Nations and other bodies, but we also need support that can break through some of these barriers to impunity. That can happen when you have joint programs such as occurred in Guatemala with the UN Anti-Crime Commission working with local prosecutors that unfortunately has now ended. But those are the kind of programs that I think can work. And unfortunately, we're a long way from that. When you get outside of the G7 nations, journalists like other people are murdered with impunity. There's programs that are making a difference in that, in that arena, but we have a long way to go. A long way to go indeed. And we need the support of the communities within the countries themselves. And of course, the international organizations like these ones we have sitting at this table. And Pauline, both CPJ and RSF have campaigned intensively against impunity. What do you think is missing at the international level to really make this an urgent issue in the global agenda? How can we really pull all of our efforts together to start seeing positive changes? I would say that there are positive changes already. The various organizations defending press freedom have worked on common cases in the past years. So I would see different aspects. The first thing is we have now new consortiums of investigative journalists throughout the world, allowing journalists from various countries, various continents, to share material, data, 
and to make sure that uh, they are the most efficient they can. So this is for the journalists. They have some sort of safe. Uh, they share the content. The content of an investigation is not only in one place, but uh, in different places. And that uh, whatever happens with the journalists or the group of journalists, someone else may be able to continue the work. The second thing is that given when we look at recent cases, specifically talk about the Jan Kuczek case in Slovakia, we can see that there were results, there were improvements, there were changes. All the organizations fighting for press freedom, not only CPG and RSF, were on the field when it happened and never gave up. And now both the perpetrators and the mastermind are being um, tried in jail. So all this sends a very strong message to the community of journalists, but also throughout the world, that there is no impunity. We are trying to get the same achievement in the case of Daphne Caruana Galizia. So I think there is the institutional part with our demand at RSA for the special representative. And on the other end, the fact that for this cause, for this fight, organizations are able to work together to support networks of journalists. It's for the cause. It's not one journalist, one story, one person, but the whole organization backing those who need in this fight. The research done by the Global Initiative Faces of Assassination Project shows that social mobilization plays a great role in assuring justice. And you've all agreed with this. The case of Daphne Caruana Galizia is emblematic. The response of the country after her murder was massive, with popular protests eventually bringing down the government. Andrew, can you tell us more about the role that those close to the victim play in addressing impunity and how social mobilization plays a role in pushing for accountability? Thanks, Syria. When a journalist is murdered, it's often because the judicial authorities fail to play their role. So imagine you're the family member of a victim of an assassination, an activist or a journalist who's been assassinated. There's no one to turn to. You can safely assume that your family member was assassinated because the police stopped short, because the law enforcement authorities fell short of conducting a proper investigation against the people who murdered your family member. You know that your family member in particular was targeted because the rest of the press was either weak, complicit, looking the other way. So there are very few people you can trust in a situation like this. And you can either choose to stay silent, hoping that eventually things will change, that there'll be a sort of historical cycle and the bad guys will, will eventually lose, or you could try to start doing things your, yourselves. And so we, after my mother was assassinated, we spoke to a few people, including Pauline from Reporters Without Borders, but there were many others as well. And slowly we, we realized what we needed to do. We needed to create enough pressure on the government at the time, on the law enforcement authorities, for them to, to realize that it was scarier for them, more dangerous for their own survival if they ignored us, if they ignored the public pressure and turned on their criminal backers. And eventually that's what happened. And now we know through a public inquiry that we managed to get on the way that all the sort of cowardly tactics being employed by the police, by the attorney general, for example, were really happening. So we had a situation where the attorney general was advising the police 
not to investigate certain individuals, for example. So all of this was happening in the months leading up to my mother's murder and probably continued even afterwards. Because unless there's enough public pressure, the comfortable way out for these people who are duty-bound to enforce the country's laws is to simply do nothing or do the bare minimal, which is to simply say investigations are ongoing. This is a complex case. And that has been the stock answer each time in my mother's case until there was a real breakthrough. And in each time in all previous assassinations in Malta. And I'm sure it's the stock answer used by law enforcement officials in in any number of corrupt countries around the world. Things only really changed in Malta because of this public pressure and because there were also regional and international organizations watching Malta very closely. Malta is a country that's very vulnerable to international pressure. It has no natural resources. Its economy is completely open. It depends on its reputation, its financial center, and so on. Obviously, in countries like Russia and Azerbaijan, international pressure is less effective, but it still helps. At the very least, it gives comfort to family members of victims. It gives them the courage to continue speaking out. It gives comfort to the journalists who continue doing their work, even though they've seen several of their colleagues already murdered. So it always helps in one way or or another. It's never going to be the one thing that will end impunity, but it's essential to support domestic efforts. If there are no domestic efforts, then it's going to be very difficult for anyone to do anything to help. But one important thing to say is that, as Guillermo said, there are big differences between countries. I mean, my sense from observing other cases is that it's often in in countries where you have some press freedom, some level of transparency, some level of civic activism, where journalists are murdered. In completely totalitarian countries, governments do not need to have journalists murdered simply because journalists are already self-censoring. So that's why in Europe, for example, the murders were in countries like Malta, Slovakia. Most threats seem to be in in the Western Balkans. And in these countries, you realize that often if efforts focus on increasing press freedom, you're perversely putting journalists in more danger because you're not making similar efforts in other areas, like ensuring there's proper prosecution of the crimes that journalists are investigating in ensuring that there's proper protection for journalists. So as Guillermo said, as Frank has said as well, it's important to focus on all of these pillars. My mother never self-censored. She faced so many threats throughout her entire career, but she never, ever self-censored. If efforts had been made on other pillars, her protection, for example, prosecution of the people she investigated, then it's clear to me that she would still be alive. Thank you, Andrew. As you will explain, silence is not an option. You can't kill the truth. And that is why the Assassinations Witness Campaign focuses on mobilizing the general public to speak about the assassination of journalists, to know about their stories and their stories they sacrificed their lives for, to not forget that justice has not been served. That's all we've got time for in this episode of The Faces of Assassination. A special thank you to Guillerme Canela Godoy, Frank Smythe, Polina de Mebel, and Andrew Caruana Galizia. A free press is absolutely critical to holding power to account. Those stories you heard today, like the story of Ahmed Divela, Daphne Caruana Galizia, Javier Valdez, and Zoe Motun, their stories must not be silenced, and we must continue their fight. 
because all these brave journalists paid with their lives to highlight corruption and criminality. Together, we will continue to keep their stories alive. So please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast series. Help us remember their death anniversaries using our hashtag assassinationwitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. Not just journalists, but environmental campaigners, politicians, activists. These crimes reverberate beyond just the victim themselves. They were husbands, wives, mothers and fathers with children, families that still live in fear, communities that still live in the fear of violence and repression. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep their memories alive and with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. This was the Faces of Assassination podcast. I am Siria Gastelum-Felix. Thanks for listening.